0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at RenewSanDiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A
1: reading from Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you." The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
0: However we find ourselves right now, help us to see that you know each of us, that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is beautiful, created in your image and likeness, image-bearer of the divine God, and we're fractured. Nobody here has it all together. In fact. When we're really honest, we're more broken than we even realize. We're we're a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us in all our complexity and contradiction, and you know us, and your response is to move toward us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, to give yourself in sacrificial, self-giving love. Help us to see that you love us this much, that you know us this much. And so now we pray. That you would open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and you would teach us in a way that our lives would be changed. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You know, this is a kind of a trifecta of a major Sunday. There's a first, for those of you who are aware of Punxsutawney Phil and the, uh, the Groundhog's Day phenomenon, February 2nd, he came out this morning, 727 Eastern Time, and declared that spring is on its way, which apparently is kind of a rarity, so... Uh, good job, Tony Phil, it's 75 degrees in San Diego, uh, well well done. Super Bowl Sunday, is another day, what a great day. I, look, I'm not that big of a football fan, I'm a party fan, I'm a chips and dips fan, I'm a good beverages and people fan, I like all that. And uh, so, you know, it's going to be a good day. I, I also, you know, I hope you already have Super Bowl plans, we, we're going to have an open house at our house, find someone on your street having a Super Bowl party and go to it and get to know your neighbors, or open your door and invite people in. That's another great thing about Super Bowl Sunday. Um, But one of the things I do when I watch Super Bowl Sunday, maybe you do this too, I'm always watching the, um, the commercials. I just think it's intriguing that some company, some firm, has invested $2 million in 30 seconds to get their message across. And they've employed a team of psychologists and sociologists and ad executives to make sure that the message gets across to you. I mean, it's really, they've put together kind of a feast. One of my majors in undergrad studies was communication studies. So I'm always watching to see, you know, what's the message that's coming across here? And it's very creative. And uh, I think it's just an interesting juxtaposition to have the, the scriptural text that we have today and the opportunity to watch all of these ads in a few hours here. Um, because, you know, as, as one person wrote, they were saying, you know, by the time, this is uh, from an article written years ago called TV, uh, about TV commercials and promotions. By the time they graduate from high school, students will have viewed over 360,000 commercials. That's staggering. That's probably more now, especially when you count ads, and click, you know, all that. Um, but by the time people retire, they would have seen over two million ads. And, uh, you know, each of these commercials has been created by smart people who pack their ads full of powerful images, catchy music and humor, memorable slogans. And uh, most of the commercials have a central theme. This product, if you buy this product, it will give you happiness, it will give you joy, it will give you meaning. They're tapping in to the deepest parts of life. And so you kind of see that person driving the Acura around the hilly mountainside. The kids are well behaved in the back. Everything's perfect. It's like, if you just lease this vehicle then life will be like that. Then you lease it and you drive out of the parking lot and your kids are throwing french fries all over the car and you realize you have been swindled. You know, but same thing, right? So this person went ahead and they said, if I could uh, rewrite the Beatitudes spoken by Jesus according to commercials, here's what they'd be. Blessed are those who fly to luxury vacation spots on tropical islands, where they lie in chaise lounge chairs, the only two people on an enormous white beach, for they should be satisfied. Blessed are those who drink much beer, for they shall be surrounded by carefree football-watching buddies and highly attractive, socially gifted women in the first half of life, and they shall be satisfied. (laughs) Blessed are those who have the latest smartphone, for they shall gaze on a screen swirling with color and shall get all the information they need, just when they need it, and they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the well-connected, because they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. <laughs> blessed are those who have outstanding kids. Verily, I say to you, highly blessed are those who have a golden laboratory retriever bounding along on that slow-motion video day of playing with the kids in the park. For they shall be the envy of real families everywhere, and they shall be satisfied. I think it's intriguing as Jesus lays out his beatitudes of who is blessed and who shall be satisfied. Because it's about the photo negative, the complete opposite. Of what we are sold every single day. Now here's what I need to point out. Is that Jesus is not saying go and try to be meek. Go and try to be persecuted. Go and try to be hungry. Go and try to be pushed to the outside. He's not saying try to do these things so that you can be blessed. He's saying if you live long enough these things will come your way. And when the world says you're forgotten, remember you're blessed. When the world says that you are out of bounds, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere, you've been trampled, and it's irre- irrevocably, irretrievably, irreconcilably broken, that God is not done with you. God might actually be at work in that very pain point right there. And so even there, you are blessed. God who says, I'm with you because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It permeates and it meets and advances every aspect of our lives. And so there's actually good news with no qualification. It's not good news if you have the right sized house or the right type of child or the right type of spouse or you have the right type of body type or whatever it is. There's actually good news for everybody in this room wherever you are in your faith journey or your life circumstances. That God actually breaks through all of that and means it. Listen to these promises. You will be comforted. You will be filled. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called children of God. You will inherit the earth. You will receive the kingdom of heaven. And here's the question. What if that's not wishful thinking, but that's actually true? What if the kingdom of heaven is really at hand, and it's closer to you than the skin beneath your fingernails? That the kingdom of heaven is not something you strive for, and work for, and climb to achieve, but the kingdom of heaven is something that is advancing in your life, and is rushing toward you at light speed even now, inviting you to open up, and to receive and to trust, and to accept, and to live into you. What if Jesus is more than merely a teacher? But he actually backs up his teaching by being the true savior of the world. The deeper life. Life to the fullest. Who wouldn't want that, right? Now here's an interesting thing about this context. So Jesus is on the scene. Uh, he has you know, ch- uh, already been baptized. Uh, As a child, they they had gone into Egypt, and he's left Egypt, and he's been baptized, now he goes up to this mountain. This is paralleling the story of Moses. Many theologians and scholars say Jesus is showing that he's the new Moses, the one who will truly lead all people out of slavery to sin and death, into the promised land of new life. And he goes up the mountain, and whereas Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law, Jesus goes up the mountain to give a new way of life altogether. And part of what his Jewish audience would have been expecting is that when God's King, when God's Messiah comes to make all things right, it would be a time of feasting. Listen to this great ancient prophecy that came. Isaiah said, The Lord will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, and of well-aged wines strained clear. And so his audience would have grown up hearing these stories of the feast that would be coming. And their parents would have remembered these stories. And their grandparents would have remembered these stories. And so now here comes God's king saying, I will bring God's kingdom. And they're thinking the feast is on its way. And he goes up the mountain and says, blessed are you when you're really, really hungry. Blessed are you when you thought things would turn out differently. Just think about that. Imagine a Thanksgiving dinner. And you go to the host's home, and it is the nicest spread you have ever seen. 1997, Opus 1, right in the middle of the table. Huge turkey, Everything that you can smell it, you can see it, you can almost taste it. And the host comes and raises the glass and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. I think we actually have a deeper life when we long for the feast. So let's just long for the feast and not eat today. Right? That's crazy talk. And yet here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry saying, you're actually blessed in your longing.'" Now, we live in a culture that is allergic to longing. I remember when the flip phones came out with that one button right in the middle that said, get it now. And now we're even faster and faster. We don't do well with all. And yet, the deepest parts of our life take time. You, know? you can get new furniture fast. You can get food fast. You cannot get a good marriage fast. You cannot have a good relationship with your best friend fast. You cannot develop character fast. You cannot develop patience fast. You cannot become a, a person of deep character and depth and groundedness and rootedness without time. It's not fast food. You can't microwave. It. Jesus says, that's okay. Because I'm with you through that long process as well. So let's just take a look in the time we have at, I want to look at one part. So side note. We talked about this passage one year ago from right now. Okay, so if, if you want to see a more sweeping, comprehensive view on this passage, go back to the podcast a year ago. I want to focus in particularly on verse 6, on this Super Bowl Sunday, uh, that talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay, let's ask, of why are those who hunger and thirst going to be filled? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for Righteousness. And how do we become these sorts of hungry and thirsty people that actually get filled in some way? First, why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice going to be filled? Well, here's the first thing. All of us hunger and thirst for something. The question is, what will ultimately satisfy? There was an article written a while back called The Latest Research on Happiness. More than 60 scientists have been given millions of dollars of funding to help humanity find happiness. A popular movement among psychologists called Positive Psychology is an attempt to elevate and focus its research on people's strengths rather than only trying to deal with human weakness and problems. And here's what they found. Although the U.S. standard of living has increased since World War II, it's increased, there is no increase in the number of people who regard themselves as happy. A US news and world report on the subject says, once income provides for basic needs, it doesn't correlate to happiness, nor does intelligence, prestige, or sunny weather. People grow used to new climates, higher salaries, and better cars. See? So we think, look better, more money, better car, more happiness, and they're saying, it just hasn't been the case. Of all the But you already know this, right? You already know this. So it's possible... That you are hungering and thirsting for things, even for good things, that won't ultimately satisfy you. I remember one of the real poignant tastes I got of this in college. A friend had talked me into being a door-to-door salesperson for a, a house painting company. And so I've walked every block, Ocean Beach, Point Loma, Coronado, uh, North Park. I've gone, I spent a summer walking every block of all of these streets and trying to convince people they need paint jobs. And apparently I was pretty good at it because I set the national record that year, and it came with this great bonus, and, and I made all this money, and I have this career in sales, it turns out. And I remember thinking at the same at simultaneously, "Great, I've climbed the mountain, I've achieved this thing, and there's got to be more to life than this. You know, I, I sold these people all these paint jobs, in 20 years they're going to need another one. There has to be something deeper here. Now look, if you're in sales, don't hear me saying sales is not a good profession. I learned in that moment it's not the profession for me. But there's a sense of calling, right? So the question is, what are you giving your life to? And what's ultimately going to satisfy? I remember the same season in college, I met this girl, and, you know, kind of everyone wanted, be, every guy wanted to be with her, every woman wanted to be her kind of thing, at least in my own mind. And I thought, if I could just get Juliet, I must be Romeo. Right. So I said everything I could on dating this person, and I ended up achieving that goal and still finding myself as lonely, insecure, and feeling insignificant as I did before. Because we think if our job's going to make it, or our relationship's going to make it, but you're still left with yourself. So the question is, we all are hungering and thirsting for something. What are you hungering and thirsting for? And how's that working for you? Is it actually giving you a depth? Is it giving you meaning? Is it noble enough and strong enough to actually hold the complexity and beauty of your life? Have you ever landed a big contract, or closed a big sale, Only to hear yourself say, this is it? After a night of binge eating or binge drinking, have you ever woken up the next day and said, I know I'm meant for more than this? After a bad decision, have you ever wondered, who am I? How did I get myself to where I am right now? See, the problem is not that you hunger and thirst. The problem is that you and I hunger and thirst for things that don't ultimately satisfy fill. So, complete this sentence. Maybe this is the diagnostic sentence. Complete this sentence. Everything will be fine with me if just blank. Everything will be fine with me if just. However you fill in the blank is an indicator of your hunger and thirst. Jesus said, blessed are the hungry and thirsty, those who can begin to taste a deeper source of identity, those whose thirst leads them to drink from a deeper well. You see, Jesus is not trying to tell you to stop hungering and stop thirsting and stop desiring. He's trying to tell you there's actually a bigger desire and a bigger hunger and a bigger thirst out there for you. He's not trying to deprive you of me. He's trying to say you are much more than the sum of your appetites. I have built you for so much more. So go deeper. And go deeper into your longings. One of my favorite places on the planet is Napa, where they have really, really good wine. And I sit there and I geek out. Florence will be testing the wine, and I'll be talking to the winemakers. Tell me more, tell me more. She's like, just look it up online. Let this person go, please. And, uh, and one of the things that just fascinates me is some of the best vineyards in the world deliberately stress their vines. And in seasons of low precipitation, just when you would think it would be time to irrigate, they choose not to because they know that thirsty vines grow deeper roots and deeper roots produce better tasting grapes. I wonder if Jesus is saying, when you're thirsty, let the roots go down deeper. Don't satisfy for cheaper irrigation in your life. St. Augustine said, "Desiderium sinus cordis," which means longing makes the heart go deep. There's a hunger and a thirst that deepens us. C.S. Lewis wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures." Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily See, the problem is our hunger and thirst gets the best of us. And it leads us into all sorts of trouble. It leads us into our addictions. It leads us into covetous relationships. It leads us into extramarital affairs. It leads us into cutting corners at work and getting in trouble there. It leads us into all sorts of different places. And so one response we do is we try to shut down our desire. And you see this in churches where we can develop systems of do's and don'ts. So we know who's in and who's out. Some of you ran from churches like that. Maybe you should because they can become really controlling and dysfunctional. Others of you are still on that hamster wheel of right and wrong, do and don't, because you're, you're afraid of your desires. And Jesus is saying, don't shut down your desires, just redirect them. Don't cut off the roots, just make sure they're going in really, really, really good soil. St. Augustine would say, there's nothing noble in killing your hunger, that would actually kill your heart. C.S. Lewis would say, you've settled for making mud pies in the slums. But there is a holiday at sea, and you're invited to it. Maybe this is what Jesus is getting at. We've looked the last two weeks at the question that Jesus most frequently asks, which is, what do you want? What do you want? Jesus, God in the flesh, the image of the invisible God, comes to earth and says, what do you want?
1: What are you looking for?
0: Jesus is not saddened or troubled by our desires, I think he might be troubled that we don't go deeper with them. So, that's why those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will actually be filled, because you let your hunger and thirst for righteousness drive you deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? See, hunger and thirsting for righteousness means that you have that glorious moment when you realize that life is not only about your existential moment and getting your wants and desires met. Um, when, that beautiful moment when you can say, in all my frantic rushing and achieving and consuming and worrying, I want so much more. That's the moment that you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's not the hunger and thirst for you to be right and everybody else is wrong. It's not that uh, you to be the insider and everybody else to be the outsider. It might be uh, one way of saying it, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the world the way it's supposed to be. It's a state of being. It's an orientation to the divine reality. It's longing for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Longing for the true, the good, and the beautiful. And here's the thing. When we're honest with ourselves, it does not naturally occur in our human hearts that are so bent toward comparison and competition and revenge and manipulation and quick fixes. So it actually takes discipline. It takes intentionality to cultivate that sort of a vision. But there's something deeper that's arising from within. From your deepest self. Where the spirit dwells. When you can see beyond the immediate need. Your immediate wants. Your immediate feelings. So you can, this, is, this is when you begin to wake up. This is, one of the scriptures talks about what it's like to become a Christian. And then what it's like to be a Christian for years and years. But constantly having a reawakening. And the words are, then Christ will say, Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. You wake up to a greater reality. Now, some of you right now are longing, you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness in your own personal life. You're longing for things to be made right. Maybe you're really frustrated with yourself right now. We live in a culture that is very uh, allergic to the idea of guilt, that you shouldn't feel guilt. And yet, when you're really honest with yourself, You can't get away from that sense that you have failed yourself or failed others. There is a sense of guilt deep down for many, many people. How do I know this? Because you tell me in our pastoral counseling conversations. How do I know this? Because I experience it too. I remember bringing one friend to church, a new friend who had been to church for a long time and apparently had done some really egregious things. And he said, when I walk into that building, the earth will shake, the walls will fall, and God will take me out. And I remember walking with him up the steps into church, and I could see the look in his face. He was rethinking every moment that led to that moment, wondering if he should have brought a construction hard hat to church that day because he honestly thought God was going to do something bad to him just for coming into church. And he trembled, and he climbed the steps, And he walked into church, and he was overwhelmed with a sense that he was loved and forgiven. Friends, maybe you have that sense in your own life, longing for some sort of righteousness and justice in your life. Maybe you're just so tired of confessing the same things, having the same habits, the same patterns, and looking for a way out. And hear him say to you, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you will be filled. So do not give up because he's not given up on you. It also means that you can have a patience with others because many of us desire and a, a hunger for a, a, a righteousness and a justice in other people out there. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been actually hurt by other people and you're saying, God, I want justice in their life. I want righteousness in their life. You've been hurt. You're in pain. Now forgiveness takes a lot of steps, but here's what I've noticed as a human being and as a pastor that when we hold grudges against other people, when we refuse to forgive, our hearts become hard and cold and wrapped around. As one mentor said, if you ever want to be a slave to someone else, hold a grudge against them. Because they're not thinking about you at all. And they're living rent-free in your mind all the time. So there's an invitation, actually, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to still want them to have justice, to still want righteous things to be the way they're supposed to be, and... To move toward forgiveness. So that you might be free. Now, forgiveness, you have to be wise about it. You have to be smart about it. I'm not saying you, you retrust. I'm not saying you become a doormat so that other people can walk on you. I'm saying you do this wisely. You do it in community. You do it with support. But you begin to move towards praying for righteousness and justice for those people over there. Now, the word righteousness actually comes from a Greek word in the original text. Dikaiosune. Which means justice. It means On the pathway towards shalom. Shalom is a very loaded Hebrew term because it's it's often translated as peace. And it means nothing less than the absence of conflict, but it means a whole lot more. It means flourishing. It means right relationship and connection between you and God, between you and yourself, to be comfortable in your own skin. Right relationship in community where you could be in a room with other people with all their brokenness and failures and you are the safest person in the room. You are connected other people. Feeling fully alive. Right relationship with the environment. Shalom. That's the kind of justice and righteousness. And so, maybe it really bothers you that our educational system in San Diego, in California, is broken. Because you hunger and thirst for righteousness in the education system, in the healthcare system, in the justice system. Our justice system is broken. We lock the wrong people up and we let the wrong people go. We have people that are paid around the clock to get justice right and we can't get it right. You begin to say I long and thirst for righteousness and justice. Not only in my life, not only in my neighbor's life but in society. When you walk by as you know in North Park we have an overwhelming amount of neighbors who live on the streets. And I know for many of us it's complex and it's difficult. Some some of these neighbors Don't want to work. Some of them do want to work. Many of them have mental illnesses or addictions. Some of them have documentation. Some of them don't. I know it's much easier to just walk by and say nothing. And yet, hungering and thirsting for right relationships invites us to see our neighbor. To know our neighbor. This is why we brilliantly call our event right here the first Saturday of every month, Know Your Neighbor. Because that is the depth and sum total of what we're trying to do here. Where our neighbors who have homes and our neighbors who don't have homes come together for joy and feasting. I saw it happen yesterday right here from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And I rejoice as it takes place. That's not something we were very creative to come up with. That's right down the middle of what it looks like to be a community that hungers and thirsts for righteousness and justice in our neighborhood. So how do you hunger and thirst? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the king is here. He doesn't shy away from your complexity. He doesn't say to you, it's not my problem. So now, as he moves toward you and me, we can move toward others. When the world says there are dead ends or dry seasons of despair, he says, even there, I am watering the garden. Even there, you will meet me. Now, let's just conclude our time by asking, okay, how do we live this out? How do we become this kind of a person that can be resilient They can have a full heart and a full life, even in the midst of hunger and thirst. And the first part of this is, you actually see that your story takes place in the context of a much bigger story. Maybe we would call this the story of God. Of creation, of incarnation, of new creation. You see, Jesus is calling his followers into a new reality. And he's saying, Follow me. I think it's really intriguing that he has been preaching and speaking and healing and all these things. And then he goes up the mountain to teach them. And on one hand, he's saying, The way up is the way down. The way towards connection is actually not razzle dazzle and flashy and in your face, it's actually subtle. And it requires following, and it requires effort. Blessed are the broken, happy are the sad. Powerful are the humble. Satisfied are the hungry. You see, in the busyness of our own lives, we so often become trapped in our own stories. And we get wrapped around these narratives that have been cast on us. You are only this, you are only that, you can only do these things. And he comes and says, lift your eyes up and see a story that is much bigger than your own existential moment. A story in which you will not lose your identity and sense of self, but rather you will find who you were truly created to become. So maybe that's the first step. You know, neuroscientists talk about that life of the small story, that life where you are reactional and not responsive. They talk about living in the limbic system, in the first brain, in the reptilian brain, where the best you could do is instantly respond like a snake or like a lizard does. But Jesus says, I actually want you to not just react, I want you to respond. I want you to have this deeper story in mind as you go through life with all of its beauty and complexity. So, maybe that is the first part, the first step of becoming a person Jesus is describing. It's just catching this vision for this righteous life, for this flourishing life, to allow our imaginations to be expanded, to actually see that that's not only a possibility, but that's actually the reality of this world. That's why we gather every Sunday right here, to stretch our imaginations. To remember, to hear, to talk, to see that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. I mean, think about it. Where do people from all different ethnic backgrounds, wealthy and poor, different political persuasions, where do people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds come together to sing, to confess our sins, to be forgiven and to be renewed? There is a miracle that takes place here every Sunday. It's why we're here every Sunday, so our souls can go deeper, because this vision is being proclaimed, and the vision is being lived out. I mean, is that the way you think about Sunday mornings? I was challenged with this as I was reflecting on that that fact. Is this how you look at Sunday mornings? You say, I can't wait to get up and go to church, because I need to have my imagination expanded. I need to have my heart recalibrated and redirected back to the true tune of the universe. You know, a lot of what happens on Sunday morning in the worship service it's, a, it's much like our musicians here, they play the instrument, they play beautiful music, but if you play long enough, it gets out of tune. How do you bring it back in tune? Well, in the old days, you take out a tuning fork and play the exact true tune of the tone that you want, and then you adjust your instrument to the true tune so that you can move forward with beautiful music. Now here's the thing. We move through this life, our bodies, our lives are the instrument. Our lives are the instrument. And we try to play beautiful music, but we get out of tune. We come back on Sunday and we remember the true tune of the universe and we redirect our hearts and our minds back to that tune so we can move forward in beauty and righteousness and justice together. Do you see Sunday like that? Because this is what God is doing in our midst. When we come to this table, we recognize that we are hungry and thirsty people and we relinquish all of the other ways that we have been satisfying our hunger and thirst that continue to leave us hungry and unsatisfied. We turn back to the one who could fill us. We're getting in touch with our true longings. And the second piece is we do this together in community. Then we actually remind one another of the truth of God's movement and mission in our lives and in our world. You know, the space in which we find ourselves broken and mourning and meek and hungry, where we can be called out and eat and drink so we're filled, but we do it all together. You know, I saw this happen yesterday. We, we not only had our Know Your Neighbor event here, we also had our, our membership course right here. And we spent the first half hour just sharing our names and a little bit of our story. And at that point, one person said, thank you so much for doing this, just so we can get to know one another as we come closer to God and to our community. We need to come closer to each other as we're coming closer to God. Because when I'm weak, I need you to be strong and carry me. I'll do the same for you. We do this for one another. There are many stories throughout scripture. The Irish have a saying, a burden shared is a burden halved." So we walk together in the community. So here's the point. If you're trying to grow in the faith and connection to God, if you're asking if you can believe these things, don't do it alone. Commit to being a part of this gathering on Sunday mornings. Commit to coming to the community group in my home. Uh, in, in any number of ways, but do not do it alone. Utilize the gifts that God's given you right here. And finally, we begin to become these sorts of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness as we cooperate with God's mission and purposes in our own lives. When we ask those really big questions like, what am I already hungry and thirsting for? What, What captivates your attention? What steals your attention? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? These are all indicators of where your hunger and thirst and desires are coming. And then hear Jesus ask you, what do you really want? There is so much more. You were made for more. He says, you were made for me. St. Augustine wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. So friends, may He fill you with His grace. May He fill you with His presence. And as He does, may we as a church be the very presence and grace of Christ wherever we go. In our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, on one hand, it's really uh, it's
1: difficult to add
0: to what you said, Jesus, in the Beatitudes, as you teach us a new way of living altogether. A life that is marked by possibility and hope and joy, even in the midst of difficulty and confusion. And so now I pray for all of us gathered here, anyone who will listen to this on the podcast, Lord, would you help us to be the people to ask deeper questions of our life about what our true hunger and thirst are and help us to see that you are the one who moves toward us to satisfy those ancient hungers. May we then be the people who move outward to love and serve other people in the same way. Would you wake us up now to your grace, we pray. In your name, amen.